Good morning. Thanks for being here this morning. So glad you could all join us. Um, uh, so last week, uh, Sarah spoke, uh, did a remarkable job. Um, uh, I was away in Durham, North Carolina, uh, there on and near Duke University, where I was taking a graduate school course. And friends, I had a fascinating experience. We had, um, I had many fascinating experiences while there. But last Sunday, I got to worship with a uh, church. It's called the City Well Church there in Riley, Riley, just outside Durham, and um, and had a remarkable experience. It was a five-year-old church plant, and um, it is a church uh, with many of the goals similar to, uh, to to us as a church as we began almost one year ago. Um, it was a church that that sought diversity, like the kingdom of heaven is diverse. And so early in their journey, they begin holding bilingual services. Um, they, they would have uh, a few songs that they'd sing in Spanish. They'd have translations always. What's fascinating about their journey is that they made that decision in the first year of their uh, church plant, and for three years, they had only one Spanish speaker in their congregation. But they were committed to diversity, and so they made decisions like that that has built diversity into their church. In fact, it's a fascinating church in which it's, it's multi-ethnic um, of, of all sorts of backgrounds. It's multilingual, um, and uh, and it was fascinating the way people participated. And I was thinking about that church this morning because uh, one of our goals and, and commitments early early on was that this journey doesn't revolve around any one person or any two people, but it's an inv- invitation to a community, um, passionate about what God is doing, exploring what God is doing, and participating and, and, and building community and creating that. And so this morning was a difficult morning. Um, I, I don't like to be a part of leading worship and speaking because uh, it can send a wrong message. And so I want to recommit this morning to the fact that we are a church about inviting people to participate in God's good work. Now, that doesn't mean overwhelming people with more responsibilities than they're up for or want, but we do want you to know that, that we come together as a church inviting people to participate where God is leading us, and he's leading us towards beautiful things. I'm incredibly excited uh, for next Sunday. Next Sunday is going to be our one-year anniversary. Um, and uh, so, so we'll, we, <laughs> we will have been in this space and, uh, and meeting as a church um, for, for one year next Sunday. Excited to throw a party uh, for, for us and for our community and just celebrate what God is doing. It's also a season of, of um, seeking new vision. What are the next steps as a church? What is God inviting us into in, in the season and in the year to come? So I'm excited for continued conversation. I'll be talking in more detail about that next week, um, but I'm excited to expand our leadership team. I'm, I'm excited to uh, launch our branches again this fall, our, our small groups, and see those gain traction in our community. So, so praise God for what has happened, excited for what is to come. If you can join us next week, uh, we'd love to have you, and I will also mention, I know there's a Seahawks game at 10 a.m. We'll have it recorded. Let's just hang out and watch the game together after church, okay? Um, so it's going to be... It's going to be a great day. We're pretty excited about that. We have been studying through the Gospel of Luke, and um, we began uh, October, uh, the, the first week of October a year ago in the Gospel of Luke. Now, that was a series that we, that we started as a church, and well, we've had a couple breaks and done a couple other things in between. For the most part, we have been one year through the Gospel of Luke. And in fact, next week will be the resurrection. It'll be the conclusion of our series on Luke. Uh, very appropriate as we talk about a church one year old, as we talk about new life and new seasons, we'll be talking about resurrection. We followed the story of Jesus told by um, the author Luke. Um, 
We've followed his story from beginning now very near the end. We followed as Jesus was born and from his birth at the temple. At eight days old, people are acknowledging this is someone special. God has come to earth. The Messiah has come. We read about uh, him as a child. And then as, um, as he started calling apostles to follow him, he invited them to come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And he taught them in transformational ways. They learned to, they, they, they learned to know what Jesus knew and do what Jesus did and participate in the world like he did. And recently we've been reading the last week of his life comprises a large portion of each of the gospel stories. That last week of life, so much packed in and happening. Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem where he knows he'll be crucified, where he's been telling them, I, I, I must suffer here. And uh, he shared a last meal with them together, and, and they broke bread, and he said, remember me as you break the bread and as you drink of the juice. Remember my, my sacrifice for you. And then he headed up to the Mount of Olives where um, he, he knew his um, he would be arrested. He was betrayed by Judas and um, he was brought before the judges. And you remember Pilate and he says, you know, I find nothing in this man deserving of death. But the crowds begin to riot and to force their agenda. And so today we talk about the most uncomfortable portion of this story that, that, that we deal with as followers of Jesus. We're going to talk about Jesus' death today, his crucifixion. And here's the interesting thing about what I, what I want to accomplish today. Not only do we have a ton of text just in Luke um, uh, 23, 26 through the end there, not only do we have a lot of text, but the experience of the first century followers was not crucifixion, then resurrection immediately. There was the days in between. And so today we're going to resonate on the crucifixion. And it's going to stand as, as its own story. We're going we're gonna to try to understand it and, and, and apply it. Um, but we'll wait for next week to the resurrection. You see, so often we see the crucifixion through the eyes of the resurrection, which is good and which is appropriate. But we're going to talk about the experience of first century followers who watched their Savior, their King, die on a cross. And for days experience the agony and the fear and the doubt and the questions that came with having seen the one they put their trust in and their hope in die on a cross. You know, death is a, is not a pretty subject. In fact, I was reading, uh, psychologists say that in, in the last decade or two, um, in American culture, the two most taboo subjects to speak on were death and sex. Now, uh, as maybe we've seen, uh, sex has not been as taboo in recent years, uh, but death remains as the most taboo subject in American culture to speak about. And so we engage a challenging subject today. It's interesting to me that culturally it's so taboo. Other cultures, it's not as much, but in American culture, it is a taboo subject, and yet death is a part of life. Isn't it interesting that None of us escaped death. No one before us has escaped it. And, and, and yet it is so taboo. We don't talk about it. In American culture, we have um, learned to prolong life so well and live so healthy for so long that death often ends up a prolonged and suffering experience as well. There's, there's some, something tragic even about the way we have, uh, th- that we sometimes prolong life. And yet death uh, comes at some point. Death enlists all sorts of different responses and action. 
Well, I was in Durham and um, learning about the racial diversity of the South and the racism that is very active and alive. Um, during that same week, there was two shootings by police officers of African-American people, and it has incited our nation in many ways. And it's a tragedy, those moments. And tragedies have been born out of that moment. Death can bring about grief and anger and frustration and, and hurt, absolutely. And yet years ago, um, when my grandmother passed, I remember she had been suffering for a long, long time. Um, and I wasn't at the, at the nursing home uh, the night that she passed, but much of the family was. And uh, they spoke of her labored breathing, and it had been that way for a long time. But something was different in that moment, and so the family had gathered, and, um, and uh, she breathed in, and she breathed out her last and she was finally at peace. There was a sense of peace in the room as she, as she breathed her last. Isn't it fascinating how life begins with that first breath in the hands of a doctor or your mother and then ends with that final breath? You see, death comes to everyone, and, and it can be everything from inciting anger uh, to peace, a realization of something better and, and a peace that has finally come, a release in that. Today, let's read as we, as we read the story of the crucifixion found in Luke chapter 23, starting at verse 26. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon of Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country. They put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, for a time is coming um, which you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that have never bore and breasts that have never nursed. Then they said, uh, Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with, uh, with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers um, even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. <laughs> but the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you're under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was about noon. Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun had stopped shining. 
And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness his sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance, watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not, con- uh, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was uh, wanting, waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. When he took it down, wrapped it in a linen cloth, and placed it in the tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. It's a long text, but one that I wanted to hear in its entirety today. As we consider this moment in history, um, where those of us followers of Jesus believe, um, believe the Son of God, God in human flesh, to have died on a cross. It begins immediately after the trial, unjust and a riot of people yelling, crucify him. And Jesus is led away, and a man named Simon from Cyrene, is called from the side of the road where people are standing and mocking Jesus and yelling at him. You see, crucifixion in the Roman world was about humiliation. So they played that card to the fullest. They would beat the men publicly. They would force them to carry the cross member of their cross on their shoulders through the town and outside of the town where they would crucify men on a hill called Golgotha, or it's translated as the skull. So Jesus, unable to carry his cross from the beatings he had received, they call a man named Simon, who's to carry the cross for Jesus to follow. I can only imagine the experience of a man like Simon, called to follow this Jesus, bloodied and bruised and broken, hardly able to walk to the place that he would soon die on a cross. And Simon knew of Jesus, Remember the stories we've been reading? Everyone knew of this man, Jesus. Word of him had spread everywhere. The Roman rulers from other providences knew of this man, Jesus, when he came on trial before Herod and and other men. See, Simon knew what was happening, I'd imagine, in this moment. And here he is following Jesus, the man they say to be a king, towards the place that he would die. He's forced to be complicit in the death of a man that was loved by so many in the nation in which he lived. So Simon follows Jesus to where he'd he'd die on a cross. And Jesus is hung on a cross between two other criminals. It was customary that they would, um, above the heads of someone being crucified, write the charge against them. And so it would be uh, insurrection, or it would be murder, or it would be theft, right? And, and there's all sorts of reasons the Romans would crucify someone. And ironically, hanging above Jesus' head is the only charge they had to offer 
Remember, the, the Roman ruler said, there's no reason to charge this guy. What's the charge against him? Well, he claims to be a king, and he's, and he's pulling our, our people in all sorts of directions and confusing them. And so, so they wrote that charge above his head, king of the Jews. Jesus died with an appropriate title over his head, the king being crucified for being a king. I'm fascinated by the character of Jesus in this story. Um, I'm fascinated by his ability in this moment while hanging on a cross to say, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. I mean, each week as we explore these stories of Jesus, we explore what does it mean to be Christ-like? What does it mean to live like Christ lives? And here we are, him in his ultimate moments of suffering, saying, Father, forgive the very people doing this to me because they just don't understand. They just don't get it. I'm struck by the hurt that I've experienced in life, and my, uh, so often my lack of inability to, to view people through a loving lens, like we see Jesus doing in this moment. We're consumed by the hurt, and we're consumed by anger, and we respond in anger because of the hurt placed on us. And Jesus, in this moment, hanging on a cross, says, Father, forgive them. When they crucified a, a man, they did so by driving stakes through their wrist. Often you'll see pictures of hands, but I think um, generally people would say that's, that's not the case. It was through the wrist because that's the only part of the body that could uh, support the weight. People didn't die of the wounds in their wrist or, or in their feet when they were crucified, but instead um, they suffocated. Uh, they hung long enough that they no longer had the strength to lift themselves up and take a deep breath. So their, their lungs would begin to fill with water, and eventually they were able, unable to take a deep breath, and they would die of suffocation. I know that's gory stuff, but this is the story that we read in, in Luke chapter 23. And so here's Jesus struggling to take breath crying out to his father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And all around him is a crowd of people. Most of them mocking him. If you really are that king that it says above your head, if you were really able to save others, think of all the miracles that people knew that he had done. Crowds followed him, thousands of people, desperate just to touch the, the corner of his cloak, knowing that there was power in this man. And so here he is hanging on a cross, and the crowds mock, if you're truly the son of God, then come down from there. Deal with it. I don't know if you've ever heard an old hymn about could have called 10,000 angels, right? That Jesus had the ability and the power and the authority to call down and change the circumstances. But here's Jesus hanging on a cross, enduring the punishment that was, that was not his own. You remember when we talked about Barabbas? He was the man who was released in Jesus' place. I can only imagine um, as, as Barabbas waiting to be crucified for his crimes, insurrection and murder, uh, Barabbas hears the footsteps in the hallway. And he knows what's coming. He knows that his, his time to pay the price for his, for his crimes is at hand. And they come and they unlock his door and they take him out of his cage and they lead him out in front of the people. But instead of the beating that he's to receive and the walk of shame to the hill called the skull, they, they say, Barabbas, you're set free. 
You're free. And he says, what's happening? How is this possible? And quite literally in the story of Barabbas, Jesus died in his place. Well, that's a story of Christendom. That's, that's a story that, that, that we have come to believe and to understand that Jesus was willing to pay a penalty. That he was willing to take the place of Barabbas and so many others, saying, I will bear this penalty. And so Jesus hangs on a cross. And on either side of him are these uh, two criminals. Barabbas should have been there with them, but no, instead, Jesus and two other criminals hang there. And I don't, I don't know if you've noticed it or thought about it, but one of the criminals hanging on a cross dying next to Jesus has the audacity to mock him, saying, why don't you just let yourself down off the cross? I've got to say, that's a, that's a hardened man. In that moment of life, to still have that kind of spite and ability. How, look at the contrast between this man hanging on a cross, able to mock the guys dying next to him, and Jesus speaking in love and compassion towards even the very people hanging him on the cross. But another criminal, he says, he says, you know, shut your mouth. He says, this guy is dying for no reason. You and I are suffering the consequences that, that we deserve. He said, don't speak ill of this man. And so Jesus says, truly today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus' invitation to something more, something new. All right, we catch a glimpse, and and again, we're not going to go to resurrection yet, but we catch a glimpse. Jesus says there is more beyond this moment. And he says to this man on the cross, you'll be a part of what is to come. There's a glimpse of hope in the story of tragedy. And in those final moments, in the final hours, darkness came over the land. And it says, the curtain in the temple tore. And some of you might have heard the story of this temple and the significance of it, uh, of, of the curtain in the temple. The temple was a place that people would come to, to worship God. And the curtain was three different arenas, the outer court, the, the court of the Gentiles, it was called. Anyone could go in there. There was the inner court, and that's where only Jewish people could go in right standing, um, could enter that part. And then there was the Holy of Holies, the most inner part of the temple. And that was where the Ark of the Covenant was, and that was where God was to dwell. And, and only one man and only once a year could anyone enter the Holy of Holies. And so the high priest would go in after all sorts of ceremony. He would go into offer sacrifices for the forgiveness of all the nation. He would enter God's presence to make those sacrifices. And so when we read here in in all of the gospel accounts that talk about this curtain being torn, it's significant in the life of the first century church. You see this dividing wall, this curtain that separated off God from, from the people in the courtyards, it tore in two signifying that God would no longer dwell in one isolated place, that the presence of humanity to God would no longer be separated by this curtain or these rituals. You see, something about the death on this cross, something about Jesus' death on that day is told in the story of the curtain was torn in two, that humanity was invited into the presence of God in what happened there. And this is one of a few places in this text that I ask myself, since we are not moving on to the resurrection, is there an element of victory even just in the cross? Now, now we could have a lot of deep conversations about this, and we could all disagree on different points of it, but I'm fascinated to ask the question, is there some sort of victory 
even just in the death, even just in the cross? And I would argue, yes, there's an element of victory in the cross in a number of different ways. First of all, Satan did his worst, right? Satan, Jesus is hanging on a cross. All of the evil in the world has done everything it can. And yet it it comes up lacking in that Jesus is not stripped of his love and his humanity and the peace and everything that he stood for and taught and demonstrated through his life. Satan did its worst, but Jesus maintains his posture of love. How easy it is it is it to overcome evil with more evil, but Jesus doesn't give in. There's an element of victory in, in Jesus' posture as he dies on a cross that day. There's an element of victory in, in this centurion, this soldier, who when he sees Jesus die on this cross, it says that he worships God and he says, truly, this was a righteous man. In the, in the death, the identity of Jesus became, began to become clear. And, and the centurion man, he acknowledged this, this hardened Roman soldier whose job is to crucify people. He, he, he comes to worship God in that moment and to say, this was truly something special. There's an element of victory in that. You see, Jesus was not broken on that day. I've heard it described as Jesus absorbing, rather than responding to the evil of the world, absorbing the evil of my world. The, the world. My uncle um, was a missionary in Botswana for many years, and um, when he taught this text in Botswana, um, the illustration that he used to speak of what happened on the cross was this. He said, um, though it's not biologically possible, I understand that. It's as though someone allowed a snake to bite them over and over again until they were out of all of, until the snake was out of all of its venom and was no longer able to harm another person, to kill another, right? And so Jesus on this day on the cross, and, and that's an interesting illustration to me. It's quite countercultural to us, but that speaks to a people in Botswana. Rather than responding to the evil and, and beating the evil with some force of strength, Jesus instead absorbed all of it on that day, and then release the rest from the punishment and the pain and the suffering that could be their own. So Jesus hangs on a cross. People acknowledge that that he truly was a righteous man, and he gave up his last breath. And the people that watched this, they beat their breasts, and they went away. They were heartbroken. I don't know, is this the same crowd that moments ago was yelling, crucify him, crucify him? I don't know. Is it an entirely different crowd? But something about the death of Jesus on that day made clear his identity to the people standing and watching. So they beat their breasts and walk away, and only a few remain. Uh, The women who had followed him are standing in the distance and watching, heartbroken by their experience. And as we begin to close today in this text, I want to consider the story of these women, the experience of of these women, and Jesus' followers standing at a distance and realizing his death on a cross. They'd come with Jesus all the way from Galilee. They'd trusted in him. They'd learned from him. They'd seen his miracles, and they loved him deeply. They supported him in many different ways. And here they stand at a distance, 
And after a man named Joseph, um, a member of the council who was against this crucifixion, has buried Jesus, the women want to go and prepare his body as, as was the custom, as, as they would do when someone was buried. And so they go and they prepare the spices and perfumes. But it is Friday evening, and Sabbath begins at sundown. And so they don't have time to go and to prepare Jesus' body. And so they're left with all the preparations to go and do what they desire to do to see Jesus and and to prepare his body. But they're left with the command to observe Sabbath. So, So the story tells us that they rested there on the Sabbath day in obedience of the commandment. And I'm struck, I'm struck by this story and this detail that I'd never noticed before. They desperately want to go and, and do what is right and prepare his body, but they chose to obey the commandment. And what's Sabbath all about? We've talked about it a little bit before, but it's about finding our rest in the presence of God. What an ironic moment as Jesus has just died on a cross, and here they are observing Sabbath. No, we had God's presence in the form of Jesus moments ago, and here we are trying to rest in the presence of God in the absence of Jesus in this moment. Can you imagine the turmoil and, and the hurt and the fear and the questions and the doubt that, that just rages in their lives in this moment, and yet they rested on the Sabbath? And so as today we are not going to go all the way to the resurrection, we're going to leave the story here. That's where I want to resonate in those last moments of of this text. The idea of finding Sabbath, finding rest in the presence of God, even in the midst of the hurt of life and death, even in the midst of the questions and doubts that rage in our head, that we are invited to know the good, the loving, the peaceful presence of God in the midst of all of that. And I'd imagine it was not easy for them, and I'm sure we can all attest that it's not easy for us. But as we end Jesus having been buried in a grave, having died on a cross, his identity clarified, his dignity and his love not stripped from him, his compassion shown for people around him, yet laying in a grave, I want to invite us today to consider the plight of these women to find rest in the presence of God, in the midst of hurt and suffering and death and doubt. It's not an easy invitation, but I'd imagine there's people here today that that need to know God's presence, nearness, and love in spite of life's circumstances in this moment. Some of us have followed Jesus for, for many years, and so sometimes these invitations can pass on by us like something we've always heard. But I want to invite us this morning that in our hurt and struggle of the week to come, as our week unfolds, I want to invite us to know God's loving presence and peace in his presence. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to know that there is rest in the presence of a God that loves you. And and we can't go into all the detail of that, but I do want to, to just offer an invitation that if that's something that's new to you and seems foreign, I would love to, myself or, or the Dean Hills or Steve or my wife Sarah, anyone, we would love to sit down over a cup of coffee, talk about what that looks like, and we would love to, to pray with you about what it means to know God's goodness and presence, even in the midst of a broken and hurting world, even in the midst of our broken and hurting circumstances.
Let's pray together today as we close out. Father God, we thank you uh, for this day. We thank you for a time that we can engage a, a subject, death, that is incredibly taboo to talk about, a story that's incredibly tragic on so many counts as we consider uh, the way Jesus uh, was treated, mistreated. Father, today, uh, I ask that you will um, uh, just overwhelm us with the story of his compassion and love and grace in the midst uh, of, of his crucifixion. Father, I pray that you will invite us, like the women in, in, in this story, to know your goodness and nearness and peace, even when all signs point to chaos and, and the victory of evil. Father, I thank you that, that though Satan did his worst, that Jesus uh, remained true, and that in him we have found uh, peace and hope and the love that he spoke about. Father, I pray that as we go from here today, that you will... Uh, help to heal us of our hurt and our wounds. Father, that we can turn to you to know Sabbath rest, to know rest in your nearness in the circumstances of life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.